If salvation is only made available through faith in Jesus Christ, then many believers and non-believers have worried that this means there are countless people who will be damned to hell for simply not hearing the gospel. Because of this worry, many views regarding the destiny of the unevangelized have been formulated, some good and some not so great as they seem to be incompatible with Orthodox Christianity. So in this episode, I'm going to explain several views on what happens to people who haven't heard the gospel and discuss which views are open to Christians who are concerned with holding a biblical view of this question. So I hope you'll stick around and find out what we think happens to those who have never heard the gospel. Welcome back, everyone. In this episode, we are talking about the destiny of the unevangelized. So, like I said in the introduction, um, if Jesus Christ is said to be the only way to salvation, a worry that has cropped up is that, well, how does this make sense? How do we make sense out of history? What happened to my ancestors? You know, if Jesus is the only way to salvation. I mean, you know, the gospel hasn't went out to the whole world for all of humanity, all of human history. So what happened to people who never even heard of Jesus? Are they, if, if he's the only way to salvation, are those people going to hell? Um, so in the last lecture, I talked about all these views concerning religious pluralism. We talked about religious pluralism. We talked about exclusivism and inclusivism. And I argued that uh, religious pluralism and inclusivism are incorrect. So we are left with Christian exclusivism. Now, in this lecture, I wanted to go in more detail because there's been Christian exclusivists. I'd say that's the main view of Christians throughout history. But there's also been uh, different views on that within Christianity. Not only have there been Christian universalists, there's been Christian inclusivists. There's also been, even in within Christian exclusivism, there's been different views on what happens to people when they die and, and whether they've heard the gospel or not. So in this lecture, I wanted to uh, maybe not so much reach a conclusion, much as uh, eliminate some views that I don't think should be live options for Christians who want to have a biblical view of it, uh, but also just kind of make my recommendation for the Christian exclusivist view I think is the best. So that's what we're talking about in this one. Uh, at the beginning of all these lectures, I present a Bible passage. I usually explain the. I usually um, have the Bible passage for two lectures, and in the first lecture, I explain it more. Uh, so our our verse for this lecture is John fourteen verse six. It says, "Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." So um, I explain this passage more in the last lecture. If you're interested in that, I would I would uh, point you to that last lecture. But yes, this is definitely Jesus saying uh, saying something that seems to, to me to point to the truth of Christian exclusivism, the idea that um, only Christianity is, Christianity is the only true religion, and Jesus is the only way to salvation. Okay. We, uh, at the beginning of all these lectures, I, I show you some questions for reflection, just some things to get you thinking or some things to be thinking about while we're talking about all this material. But also a way to, to interact with me if you'd like. You know, you can uh, leave comments in the video, in the comment section of the videos, or you can contact me through email. You can you can contact me through my academic website, uh, bcalkelts.com. There's a contact form you can fill out and it'll send me emails. Um, our first question for reflection is, have you heard the statement, people are only Christians because they were born in Christian countries? Uh, I want I want to answer that. So uh, if I don't remember to talk about it, I'll talk about it at the end of the at the end of the lecture. The second question is: Have you heard the statement? You are only a Christian because you were raised by Christians. If you were raised by parents of a different religion, you would hold to that religion. Third question of reflection is: How would you respond to these statements? Four: Have you thought of the problem of the unevangelized before? And five: What did you think about it? Okay. Um, if you are watching this on a video, I have a slide that shows all the different views that we're going to discuss today. 
And it shows the major um, things that these views are claiming. It shows uh, Bible passages that that um, support these views, and it shows some of the adherents of the views. Now, I got this. I got this table. I got this uh, chart from the book John's, uh, written by John Sanders. It's called "What About Those Who Have Never Heard: Three Views on the Destiny of the Unevangelized." So, uh, if you're interested in that, I would either buy that book and check it out. I, I recommend that book, by the way, um, if you're interested in this question. But also, that's where I got this from. But if you're watching this on a video, you know you can take a screenshot or you can pause it here, and maybe this will be helpful for you if you're talking to this about other people. But I just put that together for my students in our apologetics class so they could have it in the notes and and have a quick guide there. Uh, today we're going to be talking, like I said, about Christian views on the destiny of the unevangelized, and I was going to argue for a specific type of Christian exclusivism towards the end. But the the three main views that on Christian, uh, the destiny of the unevangelized, what about those who never heard the gospel? We're going to be looking at are Christian universalism, Christian inclusivism, and Christian exclusivism. So just like in the last lecture, I'm going to I'm going to explain all these, and then I'm going to give reasons for why I think one is best over the others. Okay, so Christian universalism. This is defined as the view that all people will, in fact, be saved by Jesus. No one is damned forever. I'm getting all these terms from a different place. Last time it was the Encyclopedia of Philosophy. This time I'm getting them from John Sanders' book, What About Those Who Never Heard? So we're saying Christian universalism is this view that all people will in fact be saved by Jesus. No one is damned forever. There's been two types, two main types of this view over the history of the church. Um, one is scholars call universal pardon, and another one is called universal restoration. Um, universal restoration originated from an early church theologian named Origen. If you've heard of him, uh, he's from the uh, second and third centuries. Origen believed that the torment of unbelievers in the afterlife won't be an external punishment from without, but will be an internal anguish brought on by the the realization that they are separated from God and His grace. So uh, he thought that the that hell is more of an internal anguish. It's more of an internal state than an external, you know, fire and, and brimstone and all that. Um, now, but he thought this anguish that you feel when you realize that you're separated from God and his grace is meant to be a purification and it won't last forever because all a people eventually will be restored and be back with God. So he thought the hell that is mentioned in the Bible is this internal anguish and it's meant for you to turn back to God. It's not meant for you to just be punished forever. So this is a type of Christian universalism because he thinks that no matter what, whether you go to heaven or hell, you're going to end up in heaven, no matter who you are. Okay. Um, another, let's see, the universal pardon is a, a different take on this. You know, I mean, it's kind of self-explanatory. I don't have um, a church father or, or anybody in particular that held to it, but it, it's the view that God's love is such that he could not possibly punish people for eternity, so he will eventually forgive and save everyone. Uh, you know, what happens with Christian universalism is usually this, this idea that uh, because God is all-loving, he couldn't possibly uh, want to... Uh, see people be punished for all eternity because he's all loving he couldn't possibly punish people forever so so whether people end up in hell or not eventually they're either going to be pardoned or they're going to be restored uh, to to be in God's presence forever okay whenever I show all these views I do want to show you just a few Bible passages that show you why uh, they hold to these Christian universalists have used um, Romans 5 verse 18 as evidence for their position uh, this verse says, So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. Okay, another verse is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 through 28. This is kind of long, but if you'll bear with me, um, it says, For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death, for God has put everything under his feet. 
Now, when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. Okay, Uh, you know, it talks about the last enemy uh, to be abolished is death. And, uh, you know, you can kind of see that there. Now, uh, a third one that I was going to show you is John 1, uh, excuse me, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, uh, the book of 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. It says, He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the those of the whole world. So we see in these passages, you know, in Romans 5, says that life will justification leading to life for everyone. First Corinthians 15 talks about death being abolished. And, you know, there's some passages that talk about uh, hell being the second death. First John 2 says that all the um, Jesus' atoning sacrifice is for the sins of the entire world. So you can kind of see how um, universalists would use these to try to argue that everybody's eventually going to be saved no matter what. And I would say Christian universalism is, is close to core, core pluralism because they're going to say that, well, you know, uh, all religions are kind of similar. Jesus wanted us to live a good life, so also you're going to be living a good life with these other ones. Maybe you'll go to hell if you're in the other ones, but you'll eventually be led to uh, to be restored to God or pardoned by God. You know, it would be similar to that Hindu pluralism that argues that all religions will ultimately lead to Brahman. Well, this is why universalism, I'd say, would be a core pluralism because it's saying that everyone's eventually going to be forgiven, eventually be restored, okay? So, but, uh, you know, we, we looked at evidence for why I think exclusivism is the best view in the last lecture. I showed you several Bible passages going to be kind of trying to argue again here why I think exclusivism is the best. Eventually, like I said, we'll be looking at different types of exclusivism, and I'll show you um, why I think those are the, uh, why I think one is better than the others. But anyway, so we'll be looking at why we think exclusivism is the case here in a second. Christian inclusivism. There's been people who are, who have been Christian inclusivists, okay? If you remember, inclusivism says that one is better than the others. Uh, One religion is better above the others. Uh, But Christian inclusivism is defined as the view that the unevangelized may be saved if they respond in faith to God based on the revelation they have. Okay, this is a kind of inclusivism, and and it's going to take me a little bit to explain this one, okay? So there's passages in the Bible that talk about what we would call general revelation. The fact that uh, God uh, reveals himself in creation. If you've ever heard the term special revelation, this is talking about God's direct revelation of himself to people. Usually we would call, say, for example, the Bible being special revelation, God directly speaking to human beings, and we record that, and it's a very direct way of talking to people. Natural or general revelation is is how God reveals himself in creation. Some people think that if you respond to general revelation in a positive way, you know, and we'll look at a passage from uh, Paul here in a second, talking about how God reveals Himself in creation. But if you if you respond to that in a in a positive way, uh, then you are basically responding to God in the correct way. So you're going to be saved at that point, and Jesus' death on the cross is going to apply to you. Uh, you know, there's a question of what happens to people in the Old Testament times if Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet, or if they never heard of Jesus, they just read about him in the Old Testament, but didn't know specifically Jesus Christ. They just read about some, you know, Messiah. They didn't know who it was. Are they saved? Well, people think that the Old Testament saints, because they believed what God had told them, what God had revealed to them at that time, they still had faith in God, even though they didn't know specifically the name of Jesus Christ, they still had faith in God, they're still going to be saved. Well, this view of Christian inclusivism is kind of the same thing. What the Christian inclusivists is saying, that if someone's, you know, maybe you're raised, for example, maybe you're raised in a Hindu culture, and you're a practicing Hindu, and you're trying to live a good life, you know, you're, you're following the teachings of Hinduism, you're living a moral life, you're trying not to hurt anybody, and, you know, because everybody's Brahmin, you know, in a way, you kind of, you're realizing that you're bad and that needs to change, so you're trying to adhere to Hinduism, so you can achieve good karma, you can live a good life, and in a way, like, that's everything that's been revealed to you, 
you, you, you know that there's a higher power, you know that there's a God through seeing nature, uh, and you know that you're a bad person and that needs to change. So what they're saying is that maybe whenever you are getting the message from creation, whenever you're realizing you're bad, you know, you're, you're trying to do everything you can. So you're kind of responding to God's message to you in a positive way. So since that, but God's only going to hold you accountable for what's been revealed to you. So because you're responding kind of in faith in in a good positive way in that way, maybe that's all you need. And, and now since you responded to God's general revelation in a positive way, then uh, Jesus' atoning sacrifice is going to apply to you just like it applied to Old Testament saints, okay? So it's an inclusivism because you could, even though Christianity is the best way to salvation, if you just straight up, you know, believe in the name of Jesus, you're going to be saved, and you, you're taught about Jesus, and you're taught all that stuff. That's the best way. That ensures it. But maybe you could still be saved in these other religions, okay? That's what Christian inclusivism is saying. Uh, and here's some passages that... Uh, that kind of show here's some passages that, that inclusivists might use for their position and that they have used in the past. So one is John 12 verse 32. It says, as for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. This is the, this is the words of Jesus saying that he's going to draw all people to himself. And, and kind of what they're saying is that that would apply to all peoples of all times, no matter where they are or whether they've heard the gospel or not. Acts 10 verse 43 says, All the prophets testify about him that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Uh, this is kind of a, a, a verse that seems to be indicating that even though the prophets weren't specifically saying the name of Jesus Christ, they were testifying about him. Uh, so, uh, you know, kind of showing this idea that maybe there's this indirect way that you could be saved. Um, 1 Timothy 4 verse 10 says, For this reason we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. You see how the wording there might indicate to some people maybe this is evidence for Christian inclusivism. Okay. So the last one we're talking about, of course, is is what I was arguing I think is, is the best one out of the three. Christian exclusivism, also known... Uh, you know, this was talked about in, in John Sanders' book. It's also known as particularism or restrictivism. I've seen it uh, called several things in several books. But it's, we're talking about Christian exclusivism. It's defined as the view that God does not provide salvation to those who fail to hear of Jesus and come to faith in him before they die. You can see how I'm using a different definition from the last lecture. It's because we're specifically talking about the question about what about those who never heard, right? Um our, our first one, Christian universalism, is saying, if you never heard the gospel, no no worries. You're eventually going to heaven no matter what. The inclusivist says, well, some people might go to hell if they don't respond to general revelation. Um, but you can still go to heaven if you respond to general revelation. Uh, Jesus' death will still apply to you. Your sins will still be forgiven even though you didn't hear the gospel. That's possible. Now, Christian exclusivism is saying you can only come to salvation. You can only go to heaven by hearing uh, the name of Jesus, by hearing the gospel, and uh, by responding to the gospel positively. Right. So if you haven't heard of Jesus, if you reject the gospel, you're going to hell. And, it, and Christian exclusivism, you know, the, the universalism says that, yeah, all religions are ultimately going to lead to God. Um, inclusivism says some religions, maybe you're going to, it's going to be the way it, even in other religions, it's possible that you can go to heaven. So it's not a complete waste of time. As long as you're responding to what was given to you, that's good. Christian exclusivism is saying, no, if you're, if you're practicing those other religions, you're, you're wasting your time because none of those religions are going to save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. Right. Um, and of course, you know the the message of Christianity as well. It's not your works. It's nothing that you do. It's your it's your reception of this gift from Jesus, this gift of salvation. But anyways, Christian exclusivism is saying that anybody practicing any other religion is wasting his or her time because those aren't going to save you. And Christianity is the only true religion, and Jesus is the only way to salvation. Okay, so uh, we've already pretty much explained this. Now we've also already looked at a passage or two, I think at least one passage, um, showing evidence for it. Oh yeah, in the last lecture I showed several of them. 
In the last lecture, um, if you are interested in that, towards the end, I talk about some biblical evidences for Christian exclusivism. I showed three main types of passages. Uh, one type of passage, and I showed like three or four of each. Uh, one type of passage is where Jesus says that he is the only way to the Father. He's the only way to salvation. Uh, this this John 14 is one of those. Another type of the passages, you see that um, Jesus commands the church and his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel, even though they're going to be um, persecuted and hated for it. And what we say is, well, it wouldn't make sense for him to do that unless um, hearing the gospel was really important for people to hear. Uh, you know, if you could go to heaven no matter what, then why even preach the gospel and put everybody in danger? The third type of passage was those that where the apostles, just the, the pointing out that the apostles, uh, people ask them, how do I get saved a lot? And they never indicated there was any other way to be saved except through Jesus Christ. So that's, that's some of the evidence we've already looked at. Here I was just going to show you a few more uh, and give you reasons why I think exclusivism is definitely the, the best, the most biblical view out of these three that we've looked at, universalism, inclusivism, and exclusivism. So John 14 verse 6 says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So uh, if you listen to my detailed explanation of this at the beginning of the last lecture, um, you, would have, you would have seen that uh, in, in the first part of this verse, in the first part of this quote, he's saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. What he's saying is that uh, what we looked at is the psalmist was asking God to show him the, his righteousness and his ways. The psalmist was also asking God to reveal to him the path to eternal life. Jesus is referencing these psalms and saying that he is, his teachings, he is literally the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to be in God's presence, you have to go through him. No one, no, you can't go through anyone. I'm sorry, you can't come to the Father except you, unless you're going through Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can make that possible. Okay, so I think that's some strong evidence. Acts 4 verse 12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Pretty straightforward stuff, I think. Um, John chapter 3 verses 17 through 18 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. I mean, <laughs> you know, we've looked at some of these passages for the other views, right? Um, but the thing is, if you think that the Bible is the Word of God and it's inerrant, then it can't contradict itself. And what happens is when we see these straightforward statements that there is salvation through no other name than Jesus... What I think it needs to lead us to do is to go back to those other passages and think, okay, well, you know, what I think this one was saying over here contradicts this one was saying over here. So maybe my understanding is off in one of those, and maybe I need to understand this one in a different way than I'm that I'm doing to to make sense out of it all, right? Um, so, anyways, to to kind of show you an example of this, I wanted to read a. a kind of long passage in Romans 1. If you remember, the Christian inclusivism is saying that maybe you can be saved by responding positively to general revelation. Well, let us let me read something from Paul in Romans 1, and I'm going to show you why I think that that is wrong, the Christian inclusivism view. In Romans 1, verses 18 through 21a, it says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. What I, what I think is happening here is Paul is saying that, yes, the, the creation does show who God, who God is. And what Paul is suggesting there, especially towards the end, is that not only is God showing himself through creation, when you look at creation, you should basically have this intuitive grasp that this can't all be by chance. Uh, and it comes from an intelligent being 
who provided all this for me, who created all this for me. And the correct response is gratitude and glorifying that, that being. Okay. So not only are you supposed to know things about God by looking at creation, but you're also supposed to, the right response to that is to glorify and show gratitude to God. Okay. But here's the thing. What Paul seems to be saying is that general revelation is enough to show you who God is. Uh, but all that really it's doing is it's enough to condemn you, right? You either do the right thing and you show him gratitude uh, or you just don't show him gratitude. But he's not saying you can be saved by showing gratitude. He's just saying that that's the correct response. Uh, but, you know, you know what I'm saying? So, like, so general revelation, God showing himself through nature is just there to show who God is, it's to to you know just one of the ways in which He's revealing Himself to mankind. It's not it's not the means to salvation, but it, it, it's enough to condemn you if you if you're you know there's a lot more to living a righteous life than than showing God gratitude, right? There's all sorts of other things we can be doing. Maybe I'm grateful to God, but then I go kill somebody. I mean, ultimately, we would say that if you understood all the teachings of, of uh, the Old Testament, if you understood the teachings of Jesus, you would know that it's all it's basically all upwards and then horizontal. If you love God, if you truly love God, you'll realize that he has forgiven you. That's one of the reasons to love him. You know, you love him because he loved you first and sought you. Uh, but then also be, you love your neighbor because you love God. If you truly love God, then you'll love your neighbor because you'll know that God wants you to love your neighbor because we're all made in the image of God and you should respect your neighbor and love them just as much as God loves them. But anyway, so so I think some people might say, well, if you kill somebody, then you don't really love God because if you did love God, you wouldn't kill other people. But anyways, what I'm saying is uh, responding to general revelation is just one of the ways that you're supposed to be, is one of the things you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be showing gratitude, but there's all sorts of other ways you could, you could uh, go wrong. Or, you know what I'm saying? So I, what I, what Paul never said in that passage is, is that in that passage is that it would save you if you responded correctly. He's just saying that that's the correct response. Okay. Um, because if you took what he said in that passage to be evidence for inclusivism or pluralism or universalism, the problem is it seems like things he says just like not just but a few chapters later would contradict that conclusion, right? In Romans 3 verses 10 through 12, it says, as he says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. What he's saying is that people who aren't saved aren't, um, you know, uh, and and every even obviously in other places he says that even people who are saved they're still sinning. So it doesn't, just because you're saved, you're not perfect, and and you never will be until you're resurrected in God's presence, right? But uh, so we're all going through a process, and Christians aren't perfect. So don't be taking me to say this. But what he's saying is that nobody seeks God. Nobody is righteous. Everyone has gone astray and everyone deserves condemnation. Okay, so uh, it seems strange to try to say that Romans 1 is evidence that you can use general general revelation to be saved. Uh, because it seems like general re revelation is just enough to tell you that God's there uh, and to basically condemn you if you're not responding correctly. It's not saying that you're going to be saved. It's saying you're going to be condemned if you don't respond if, if you do respond, it's not saying you'll be saved, but if you don't respond, it's saying you're condemned. But also he says that no one is righteous anyways, and everyone, everyone deserves condemnation anyways. So it seems to be pointing away from a type of Christian inclusivism where you could be, just as long as you're responding to whatever you're given and you don't believe in Jesus, maybe you're going to be saved anyways. Um, also in Romans 3, verses 21 through 24, he says... But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Paul is saying the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. So it seems like inclusivism can't be true for you to you know to be justified freely is only through Jesus Christ so he's he definitely seems to be pointing away from a uh, Christian inclusivism okay 
And, um, you know, when we ask ourselves, well, what about the, what about the pluralism? What about a, a loving God? Uh, what about a loving God who, um, who, you know, like if God truly is infinitely loving, then how could he possibly condemn people uh, for eternity in hell? Uh, what about, you know, the, the universalism? Well, let me show you one last passage, and then I'm also going to talk about a, a common objection, and then I'll be getting into the different types of exclusivism and tell you, show you which one I think is right. The last passage I want to look at is Romans 10, 13 through 15. Uh, it says, For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? Okay, this one especially, I think, is getting rid of any uh, any possibility of an inclusivism where maybe you're saved even though you're in a different religion and you haven't heard of Jesus, or you're in a different religion and you're rejecting Jesus. Paul says, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him if they have not believed? This just this is just another verse that that supports what we're saying. Paul's saying that someone's not going to be saved if they haven't heard. Uh, you know, he's saying, how can they call on him if they haven't believed? How can they believe if they haven't heard? How can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? Since Jesus Christ told the all the church to preach the gospel to the whole world, why would he do that if you could be saved? It, it gets rid of inclusivism and it gets rid of uh, universalism. Because if you can be saved no matter what, like universalism teaches, then there's no point in preaching the gospel. If you can be saved even though you're in a different religion, but you're re responding positively to general revelation, there's no point in preaching the gospel. So I, I, just, I just don't know how you can get around this. And what we would say is when you go back and look at those other passages, usually there's an easy way, if you understand what these other passages are saying that I just showed you, when you go look at the passages that the universalists and inclusivists are, are, are using, you can kind of, in light of these more clearer ones, it's just there's just straight up say, you know, there's only there's no other way besides Jesus. Well, that's pretty clear. And when you can take the other passages that the inclusivists and the universalists are using, if you can interpret that more than one way, and one of those ways is, and, and you know, one of those ways is always going to be compatible with what we're sh showing you here. Uh, since there's more than one option, you're going to want to go for the option that doesn't contradict the <laughs> what it says clearly, right? That's one of the principles of interpretation is that you don't want to form doctrines off of debated and vague or less clear statements in Scripture. You want to you want to formulate your doctrines on on really clear, obvious statements, right? Well, what I'm showing you, I think, are pretty clear statements, and we would want to understand the other passages in light of these. Okay, so if Jesus sends the gospel out, sends the church to preach the gospel, how could exclusivism or inclusivism? Excuse me. How could uh, universalism or inclusivism be true? It wouldn't make any sense, especially when Paul says you can't be saved unless you uh, believe in Jesus Christ. So I just don't see that. And, and when you're talking about, you know, uh, well, the, the, the pluralists want to say God wouldn't send someone to hell because God is all loving. Well, I just think that that is forgetting uh, some of other God's attributes, right? God is not just a God of love. He's also a God, a holy God. He's also an infinitely just God. And when he makes a moral law, when he makes other uh, laws that we have to hold to, and he says that you need, you are made in my image, and a part of that is you you represent me. So your, your job is to be completely righteous, completely moral, like me, because you're supposed to represent me. And then you break all those rules and you don't do those things, you deserve punishment. And a just God is just has to punish sin. A holy God can't live in the presence of sin. And since God's presence is going to be everywhere in the new heavens and new earth, he's got to exclude all those people who who are sinners, who uh, their sins weren't atoned for. You know, And he's got to punish sin somehow. So um, also, and I would say this, because God is loving... Because because he is loving, he's not going to force people to choose him too. That's another consideration to be thinking about. If someone, if you truly love someone, you're not going to force them to be with you. 
God's presence is going to be all over the new heavens and the new earth. And he's not going to force those who don't want to be in his presence to be in his presence. So he's going to cast them into, into hell. So uh, not only a fuller consideration of God's love shows that he's not going to force people to be in heaven, but also uh, consideration of his justice and his holiness shows that uh, it's not incompatible with his, his nature with, with who he is, what he is, to send people to hell for not choosing him, okay? So, I, I'll say this, I don't, I don't like the idea of people going to hell. I, it's not something, I wish it, that, I wish that concept wasn't in Christianity. I wish it wasn't something that Jesus and God uh, taught, told us. But because of all the evidence, I have to accept that it, it is the case. But and I can show that it doesn't contradict uh, what, you know, there's no contradiction within the teachings of Christianity. It all makes sense. It's all rational to believe. It's just, I don't like it, but that's reality, and I don't get to choose reality. So uh, one objection I wanted to talk about, because I've seen this all over the place, and I just wanted to point this out just in case you weren't connecting the dots. Have you ever heard someone say, why would God send people to hell for simply not believing a proposition? You know, and on my slide here, I have a couple of memes. One of them says it shows this girl looking kind of confused. Uh, it says you are going to hell for not believing exactly as I believe. In another meme, I've, it's got Bill Gates, Bill Gates on it, and he's smiling at the top and bot. Well, you know, it's a meme at the top and bottom. It says donates billions and saves millions of lives is going to burn in hell for not believing in God. Yeah, that seems fair. <laughs> So it's this idea that God is going to, you know, God is this crazy, vindictive uh, being, and he's going to send all these people to hell just because they didn't believe some proposition, right? Oh, you didn't believe that Jesus was was uh, the savior of the world, so you're going to hell. And, and you're just going to hell because you didn't believe this one thing. You know, how how that doesn't make any sense, right? That That's the objection. Well, I hope that uh, from what we've talked about, you can see that this is a complete misconception. I, I want to point out what Christianity teaches is that we're all sinners. The, the, the consideration to remember is that God sends people to hell because they have sinned. Okay, He doesn't send you to hell because you didn't believe a proposition. He sent you to hell because you sinned. You either, you know, you either lived your entire life for yourself or money or sex or power, and you never uh, gave gratitude to God. You never uh, wanted to do the things he wanted you to do. You acted in ways that you ought not to act, that there aren't becoming of the image of God. So you're going to hell because of your sin. <laughs> uh, believing in Jesus is the means to salvation. Living for yourself and sinning is the is the means to hell. And that's why God sends people to hell. It's not because they didn't believe in propositions. It's because they lived a life of sin. Okay? So that's the important thing to remember. The, the gracious and the amazing thing, and the reason why I think all atheists should wish that all this was true, is that Jesus Christ, God himself, came to the earth and died for all human beings. So if you accept that gift of salvation, it is yours. But anyways, I, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try to quit preaching here. But uh, but yeah, if you ever hear that objection, oh, why would God send people to hell for not believing a proposition? He's not sending them to hell for not believing a proposition. He's sending them to hell for their sins. Believing the gospel is the means to salvation. Uh, but you need to believe the gospel because first you were a sinner. <laughs> Uh, but anyways, let's. Uh, so I, I think uh, those are some some reasons why we should reject Christian universalism, reject Christian inclusivism. The Bible seems to just straightforwardly state that uh, Jesus is the only way to salvation, and I think a fuller understanding of God's uh, love and justice and holiness will show us that it's not incompatible with His love, justice, and holiness to send people to hell forever. You know, it's another, it's a whole other class, it's a whole other lecture on the nature of hell, and uh, some people have different views of it. You know, there's a common misconception that maybe it's going to be full of demons and, and the devil's going to rule over it and all this stuff, and it's going to be hot pokers and stuff like that. Uh, that's a common misconception of hell. Um, but I don't have time to cover that. Just know that hell isn't always what people make it out to be. Uh, but uh, let's now turn to uh, different types of uh, views that are closer to Christian exclusivism. And I wanted to discuss these a little bit because there's a couple of middle ground views left over. And I wanted to at least show you that it's not it's not all this bleak, 
well, if you didn't believe, you're going to hell and that's it, you know. We think that there's because we think because God is loving and because God everything God does makes sense, you know, especially if you think about this uh, a, a really common uh, intuitive ethical principle is that you shouldn't be punished for something you didn't have control over, right? Uh, you you don't punish you don't reward someone for doing something uh, that they didn't have control over. You don't punish for, for someone for doing something they didn't have control over. Because we know that God is, is just, and because we know he's loving, we think that there are probably ways that make sense that you, um, if you're going to hell, you deserve it. Okay, so that's what I wanted to talk about with these middle ground views. And I just wanted to recommend one of them to you over the others. Well, one middle ground view is called post-mortem evangelism, okay? Also known as divine perseverance, if you hear that term. But postmortem evangelism is defined as the view that the unevangelized receive an opportunity to believe in Jesus after death. So even what this view is saying is that even if you didn't hear uh, uh, the name of Jesus when you're alive, everyone is at least going to get to hear the name of Jesus after they die, and they can respond or reject it then, and then they go to heaven or hell. Okay, so if you you know, if you heard about Jesus in your life, you either accept Jesus or you rejected it. This wouldn't apply to you. But if you hadn't heard of Jesus, then, then it's, you're at least going to hear about him and get an opportunity before you go to where you're going. Okay. Um, postmortem evangelism view. People have uh, used a, a few passages to try to argue for this one as well. One is First Peter three eighteen through twenty. That says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Uh, so if you notice here in, what is it, in verse 19, it it seems to be saying that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison who were disobedient in the past. Um, really quickly, I wanted to mention this. Uh, so so uh, postmortem evangelists think that maybe this is evidence that uh, when you die, uh, Jesus is going to preach the gospel to you before you go to where you're going. But I will. I want to say that whenever I studied this passage, it... Uh, it it seemed to be like the the majority of the the um, conservative Bible scholars were saying that when it talks about the spirits in prison, it's uh, well, you know, when you look at the when you look at the Greek and all that, it's it seemed to be indicating that these were um, the spirits. If you go back to Genesis, you know, you see here where it says where Noah. The spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah. Well, when you read uh, around there in Genesis, it talks about um, some. It talks about the Nephilim who tried to mix with, uh, tried to mix with humanity, and they were they were cast out because of that. Uh, I think most scholars think this is basically talking about demons who are in hell. Jesus, if you know, if Jesus went to the underworld and and proclaimed to them, uh, these were spirits who were in prison, but they're they're demons. Does that make sense? So they're not human beings, and he's preaching the gospel to them. Uh, these are these are demons who who don't have a choice either way because they're already condemned. Okay, and and also they think that this is like the the major Jewish interpretation of this uh, from for a long time. So, so that's probably what this passage was referring to when Peter was writing it. So we don't necessarily think that's evidence, a good evidence for that position, actually. Uh, but it has been pointed to. Another passage is 1 Peter 4, 5-6. through 6. It says, They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. Um, some people have used this for the postmortem evangelism view, but uh, also really quickly, and I'm kind of doing this in a different format. I, usually I show them and then argue against them, but now I'm kind of arguing against it as I go, but that's just how I was going to do these last few views. 
I don't think this is good evidence for the postmortem evangelism view, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. Um, here, you can take this of one of two ways. You see in verse 6, it says, For this reason the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. Don't think this this is necessarily, and, and see, this is kind of an example to you. So, um, you know, looking at those passages that say that you need to preach the gospel to all the world if you're the church, and looking at passages that saying that you need to respond to Jesus before you die, uh, if that's the case, then there's there's more than one way to take this, right? You could take this verse 6 to be saying that dead people who hadn't heard the gospel were preached the gospel too. But I don't think that's the case. What this seems to be saying, and seems to be obvious if you think of it this way, is that this is saying that the gospel, uh, the people that it's mentioning that are dead now were people who heard the gospel while they were alive and responded to it. Does that make sense? For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead. You could take it to say that they were dead and it was preached to them, or you could take it to say that they were it was preached to them and now they're dead. Does that make sense? So, uh, I think it's easy to show that this can be interpreted in a way that goes along with those more clearer passages. So that's kind of how it works is what, what I've been getting at. Um, another middle ground view that I want to mention, okay? I Because I think the uh, post... The, the reason why I don't think postmortem evangelism is a good view is because to me it seems like it's more of an inclusivist view. You, you know, because if you're going to get preached the gospel, no matter what happens, if you haven't heard of it, it sounds a little bit more like it's getting uh, closer to inclusivism. So, so preaching the gospel doesn't matter because it's going to get preached to people no matter what. Um, you know, so it really evangelism seems to not matter all that much because, oh, why go out and preach today? Because I know they're going to get preached the gospel when they die. Right. So this one, I think, seems a little off. And, I, and the passages that they use to try to show it, I don't think it's the best. Now, I think if you if you view it a certain way, it seems to be closer to exclusivism, but I'll mention that here in a second. I think basically if you interpret postmortem evangelism to be a type of universal opportunity bef- before death, then maybe. But l- let me explain what I mean. So uh, the last middle ground view I want to show you, and I'm showing this to you because it's the one I like the best, personally. Um, I think it's a type of exclusivism that can really explain why God is still just, and and even if someone hasn't heard the gospel, what's going to happen, okay? Universal opportunity before death view is defined as the view that all people are given the opportunity to be saved by God sending the gospel, Um, even whether that's by angels or dreams, right? So, Maybe no one's there to preach the gospel to you, but if, but uh, if you, um, you can still have the opportunity to be saved by hearing the gospel by a, a vision or a dream or an angel appearing to you, or at the moment of death or by middle knowledge. Okay, so the moment of death part is where you would kind of roll this up into postmortem evangelism, but it's it's still going to be different, and I'll, I'll explain to you why. The universal opportunity before death view is is still. This does uh, include the idea that you need to respond to general revelation, okay? I kind of touched on this a, a little bit earlier, but I need to explain this just a little bit further. Um, when, when systematic theologians talk about salvation, and, and they have considered this thing, you know, this was a big misconception I had when I was a non-believer and I was an atheist, I argued, well, I always said, and, you know, obviously, I reg- well, I regret a lot of things I did as an atheist, but one thing I regret, that always, you know, blasting and saying all these things, one thing I would say is that Jesus was one of the worst things that happened to everybody. Because when Jesus came, now he said he's the only way to be saved. But what about all those people that lived before Jesus, before Jesus showed up? They all must be in hell because they never even heard of Jesus. So how could they even be? How could they be in heaven? They are all in hell. So I, I said that's something that doesn't make sense about Christianity. Well, theologians have known about this issue for centuries, and they've already answered it. You know, so it's just another uh, straw man that I had a straw man concept that I was knocking down of Christianity when I didn't take the time to understand it. So the thing is, what what people say is, and, and we get this actually from Paul. Paul mentions that uh, God counted 
Abraham's faith is righteousness when Abraham believed in God. So what Paul is saying is that Abraham was saved because he believed what God had revealed to him. Okay, God made these promises to Abraham and God believed it. So God counted that as his righteousness. And you see in, in these other passages we've, we've shown that uh, what Paul says now is that God's righteousness is in faith in, is through faith in Jesus. Well, back then in Old Testament times, as long as you re- re- responded positively to what responded in faith to what God had revealed to you, then they think that the Old Testament saints were saved like that. If you believed in God, if you had faith in God and the promises He made to you, as in the, in the Old Testament times, Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross still applies to you because even though you hadn't heard his name specifically you still believed in the promises you still had faith in God okay so that's how people um, were saved in Old Testament times now the inclusivist though is trying to kind of basically make everybody today even though Jesus Christ has already revealed himself the inclusivist is trying to make everybody today kind of be like that where if if they respond to general revelation positively, then they're saved. Jesus has their back, right? Jesus has them even though they never heard of him. I don't think that works because of what we've already said, right? I don't think you can turn everybody today into an Old Testament saint just because they haven't heard of Jesus. I think it, we need to take Jesus' word seriously and, and, and believe that we need to go preach the gospel because if we don't, people will go to hell. But be, but be, having said that, because we know that God is just and he wouldn't uh, send someone to hell um, if they didn't deserve it. And also, you know, it makes sense if he wants everyone to go to heaven and Jesus has made that possible. He's going to make it he's going to make it as possible uh, as he and attainable as he can. Right. So now, again, I said that people are going to hell for their sins, not because they haven't heard. Right. So don't don't take me to be saying that. But Daniel 2, let me just get to this. Daniel 2 and Acts 8 give us evidence for this universal opportunity before death view. What this view is saying is that if you respond positively to general revelation, if you respond positively to to God and what he has revealed to you, it's not like you're going to be saved because you're believing in God in that way. That's, general revelation is just supposed to be God revealing himself to you. But that's not, he's not really making a promise or telling you anything that you can have faith in. Does that make sense? So that's why we don't think general revelation can save you. Uh, in Old Testament, saints are being saved because they're being saved by believing in God's uh, special revelation. Okay, And what we think is, though, if you respond positively to general revelation, if you realize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and that there's a God who can provide it because he created the world, then we think that God is going to send you the gospel. He's going to give you a chance to believe in it. And that's either going to be through a vision, through an angel appearing to you. Different variations of this are people that think that um, uh, that could happen at the moment of death, like right before you die, maybe you have a vision. Or Now, this middle knowledge part uh, in, in my definition. So my definition said the view that all people are given the opportunity to be saved by God sending the gospel or at the moment of death or by middle knowledge. The middle knowledge view, I don't really hold to, but the middle knowledge view says that God judges you on the basis of what he knows whether or not you would have responded to the gospel. So maybe you never heard of the gospel and then you die. Well, you're going to go to heaven if God knew that you would have responded positively to the gospel. Okay. I don't hold to that one. If, if it was up to me, I would just erase that from the, the, the definition. But um, what Daniel 2 and Acts 8 gives us evidence for this. In Daniel 2, God gave uh, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar a dream about the future, right, if you remember that. Uh, none of the king's wise men could interpret the dream, uh, but eventually Daniel was able to interpret the dream with God's help. After Daniel, um, to the king, after Daniel told the king the interpretation, the king gave praise to God and called him the God of gods and the Lord of lords. So uh, God knew that that King Nebuchadnezzar was in this place. Um, you know, he gives King Nebuchadnezzar this this vision, and he sends Daniel to interpret for him. And then he all this was revealed to him, and he trusted in God after that. Uh, in Acts eight, you see that uh, an angel tells Philip to go see an Ethiopian official who came to Jerusalem to worship God. The official had been reading a passage in Isaiah. And Philip told him the passages about Jesus, and he told the, him the good news about Jesus, and the official wanted to get baptized immediately. God knew that that um, uh, God knew that that Ethiopian official 
was uh, in this place where he he wanted, you know, he was seeking God. Uh, he he was in this place where he was condemned of his sins and he knew that he needed a savior. Well, then the God sends Philip to preach him the gospel, basically. Okay. There's and it's so interesting if you read into what's happening happening in um, in the mission field. There's stories that are just like this from all over the globe. Now I just realized my slide is is uh, is off. It says Norman L. Geiser. His name is Norman L. Geisler. But I've got some quotes for you from Norman Geisler, the late Norman Geisler. Uh, he wrote about these in in a in a book called If God Why Evil, a new way to think about the question. Um, I've got several quotes, and these are basically stories from him from the mission field. One quote says, I was in Eastern Europe before its doors were opened to the gospel. I heard of a Russian girl who was seeking God when a Bible fell out of a building at her feet. She picked it up, read it, and was saved. Another story says, A number of years ago I met a Chinese student who said he was seeking God but had no Bible in Chinese. Having heard of an English Bible in the library, he studied English for years read the Bible, and came to believe in Christ. Uh, The third story says, Some years ago a native African was saved from his enemies, then was guided by a light out of the jungle to a missionary who subsequently led him to Christ. Samuel Morris eventually came to America and won many to the Lord. I don't know if it was that story or something else, but I've I've always heard, and I can't remember the source. I've looked for it and I can't find it. But I thought I'd heard a story of, of someone who, of a man who was like, he had been into a fight, and he was running from his enemies. I can't remember, uh, and he, and he was just, or or he was just in the jungle. I don't know. Maybe I'm crossing the stories, but I, I remember hearing a story of a man who's in the jungle and was just condemned of his sins for <laughs> all of a sudden, and he's like, "I'm a sinner, and I'm in, in need of a savior." And it, what I heard was in the story, a Bible literally fell out of the out of the canopy of the jungle and and fell at his feet <laughs> and it was it was uh, it from a care package that was being dropped by missionaries um, but anyways you hear stories like this all the time uh, one thing that I find so interesting is that I've heard a lot of uh, Muslims these days uh, visions are big in the Muslim um, uh, in Muslim culture and I hear a lot of Muslims are coming, becoming Christians because they are having visions of Jesus Christ. If you've ever heard of uh, Nabil Qureshi, um, he was someone who had a similar, uh, uh, a similar experience. Um, he, you know, he was he was a Muslim. Now, this is a little bit off because I think he had already heard the gospel. Uh, you know, if you know anything about the whole story, um, he had someone telling him the gospel. Uh, he had a Christian friend who was trying to convert him. But anyways, uh, he was really wrestling. He, he was a devout uh, Muslim, and, and he didn't want to switch over to Christianity. But here's here's just a part of his story. It's, here's a quote. It says, By the end of my first year in medical school, God had given me a vision and, and three dreams, the second of which was the most powerful. In it, I was standing at the threshold of a strikingly narrow door, watching people take their seats at a wedding feast. I desperately wanted to get in, but I was not able to enter because I had yet to accept my friend David's invitation to the wedding. When I awoke, I knew what God was telling me, but I sought further verification. It was then that I found the parable of the narrow door in Luke 13, verses 22-30. God was showing me where I stood. So Nabil Qureshi came to faith partly because he had a vision of Jesus Christ um, and and that's that's one of the major reasons why he converted from from Islam to to Christianity. So so what I'm saying is I think this is a this is my favorite view. I think you could hold others, uh, but it, it just makes sense to me, right? Uh, and and you know I'm showing you people who were seeking God, and, and don't take that to be a contradiction of what what Paul said in, in Romans. No one seeks God. The, the the fuller Christian explanation is that the Holy Spirit draws people to him. So uh, the Holy Spirit basically, in a way, draws you to him. So even though by ourselves we would never seek God, when the Holy Spirit works through you, it, it causes you to, by your own free will, to, to seek God. Okay, so so that that's why th- that wouldn't be a contradiction. Uh, so, But what we're saying is, it, it seems like it would make sense. So, you know... First, I established that the Bible seems to be saying Christian exclusivism is the best way to go, right? It, it, it just, I don't see any way around it. 
Uh, maybe you disagree with me, maybe you don't, but that's the way I see it, okay? But how do we explain a loving God is going to send people to hell? Well, we explain that it's you're going to hell because of your sin, not because uh, he's just being a big old meanie that telling you to believe something and you either believe it or you don't. You're going to hell because of your sin, right? But it, but a, an all-loving God can send you to hell because God is not just all-loving. He's also uh, completely just and completely holy. He can't he can't put up with sin and he must punish it because he's infinitely just. But also his love is such that he would not force you to be with him if you don't want to be with him. Okay, So all that makes sense. But we still come back to this question of what happens to those who've never heard. But when we look at the mission field and when we look at the Bible, we see stories of people who are being drawn to God. But being drawn to God through the Holy Spirit is not just enough. You also still need to hear the gospel to be saved. So what we're saying is, Maybe the church won't reach someone, but in these rare instances, if someone is looking for God, God is going to find a way to either get the church to them or he's going to appear to them in a vision. So there are options. If you haven't heard the gospel, it's not the end of the world and, and, and Christianity is not teaching that it's you just either heard Jesus' name or you didn't. You know, Old Testament saints, those back in the day when God would reveal himself to people, if you believed what he said, then you're covered under Jesus. But in now, after Jesus, you have to hear the name of Jesus, but God is still going to make that available to you in some way. Okay, so I hope this uh, answers it for you, maybe gives you some uh, some more insight into this question. It's, it's definitely a difficult question to wrestle with, and I don't want you to be saying that I'm you know that you have to hold that that uh, that view that I was talking about the universal opportunity before death view. You know, maybe you hold a different version of exclusivism or, or others, but I just think it's the, the the most biblical and the best that that goes along with Orthodox uh, historic Christianity. So, um, but yeah, I hope I hope that helped. And uh, now I'm just going to show you the remind you of the question for reflections, and then we'll close out. So our question for reflections, if you our questions for reflection, if you remember, is have you heard the statement people are only Christians because they were born in Christian countries? And have you heard the statement you are only a Christian because you were raised by Christians? If you were raised by parents of a different religion, you would hold to that religion. You know what? I forgot to mention the answer to that. And I, um, if you thought of something else, let me know. But this one is actually really easy to answer really quickly. If someone says you're only a Christian because you were raised in a Christian home, there's two things about it. For one, it's demonstrably false. I personally, well, I was raised in a Christian home, okay? But then I became an atheist, and then I became a Christian eventually, okay? So, for one, I became an atheist. When I became an atheist, that would contradict this, because I wasn't raised in an atheist home, so how was I an atheist in the first place? Um, but, you know, then I became a Christian. But there's other people who were never Christian to begin with who became Christians. So that, that just shows that this, this statement is false. But here's another way to, get, to, to show them why it's the incorrect way to think. If someone says, you're only Christian because you were raised that way, well, you can ask them, are you an atheist because you were raised to be an atheist? They're either going to say yes, and that would undermine their belief in atheism. <laughs> I mean, it, I'm using an atheist as an example. It could be anybody. It could be a Muslim. It could be a Hindu. It could be a Christian saying this. It could be an atheist. Whatever they are, if they say, you're only that way because you were raised that way, you can say, well, what is your belief? They say, well, I'm an atheist. I'm a Christian. Say, well, it, were you raised in an atheist household? If they're an atheist and they were raised in an atheist household, that undermines their belief in atheism because they were... They're only an atheist because they were raised that way, right? So it either undermines it, or if they're an atheist but they were raised in a Christian household, that just that contradicts what they're saying. <laughs> so either either way, this statement either undermines itself or it contradicts it, or it's just shown to be false. So, so anyways, I just wanted to say that. I forgot to mention that in the lecture. Our, our third uh, question reflection is, how would you respond to these statements? Fourth one is, have you thought of the problem of the unevangelized before? Fifth one is, what do you think about it? So I hope I gave you some good food for thought on this question. I hope maybe I gave you some comfort or, or explained this to you if you're a non-believer. Um, our quote that we're going with, because we're about to start talking about the problem of evil, is uh, from Frank Turek's book, Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. Uh, Frank says, Good reason provides all the information we need to see that the very existence of evil is a contradiction for atheism. If evil is real, then atheism is false. 
Um, really quickly, I wanted to make a shout out to Southern Evangelical Seminary and Bible College. It's where I was trained in my uh, philosophy training, a PhD in philosophy of religion. Uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary is a great uh, place to go if you are interested and want to dive deeper into these apologetic topics. I highly recommend it. If you want more information on them, they've got um, certificate degrees, bachelor degrees, master of divinity, master of arts, doctor of ministry, uh, master of theology, PhD. They've got it all. Uh, go to www.ses.edu for more information. Uh, it's a non-denominational seminary, uh, evangelical, uh, high emphasis on apologetics and inerrancy of Scripture, and you can learn theology, philosophy, and apologetics. Also, want to recommend to you Kingdom Preparatory Academy. That's um, a classical Christian school in Lubbock, Texas, where my kids go. I highly recommend it. If you're looking for a classical Christian alternative in Lubbock, Texas area, um, I suggest you go to kingdomprep.org um, or just Google it, the name Kingdom Preparatory Academy, and you can look at information on that. Give them a call, drop by for a visit. Um, it is a classical Christian school uh, and a university model, so students usually only go part of the week. Uh, the rest of the week they're at home taking lessons. So... Um, I hope we gave you some good information on what happens to those who haven't heard the gospel, and I look forward to seeing you in the later lectures where we're going to start talking about the problem of evil. So I hope to see you there, and I hope you have a great day.